Back to Romans 7, we return this morning, the 7th chapter of Romans, and the same passage that we considered last Lord's Day. You may remember that uh, last week we spent the time hearing four main interpretations that have been made of this passage. Some find behind these tortured words here in Romans 7 an unbeliever, someone who is unconverted. Others find the so-called carnal Christian, someone, as this view holds, who has Christ as his Savior, but not as his Lord. Yet another view has this as Paul's recollection of that period of time in his life between conviction of sin and conversion. The view on which we landed, however, the view that takes this text at at face value and really rings truest with the rest of the scripture and Christian experience is what we uh, is is that what we read here in Romans 7 is quite simply a cry of the genuine Christian's heart difficult as it may be for us to accept and alternative interpretations aplenty notwithstanding we must finally admit that what we are about to read again is simply the experience of Christians everywhere and at all times. This is where that faithful pastor I sometimes quote to you, Alexander White, landed in his understanding of this passage. And so important is that view, so central to what it means to be a Christian in this world, White made it a point of departure even in the selection of what commentaries he would buy for his library. <clears throat> White told his congregation in a sermon that as often as my attentive bookseller sends me on approval another new commentary on Romans, I immediately turn to the seventh chapter. I am, and, and if the commentator sets up a man of straw in the seventh chapter, I immediately shut the book. I at once send back the book and say, no, thank you. This is not the man for my hard-earned money. And by man of straw, white meant anything other than Paul as a Christian describing his experience as a Christian and giving vent to his frustration with himself and disappointment in himself as a Christian. You figured out by now that your own pastor takes that view of Romans 7 and that, as we heard last week, this is indeed the cry of a Christian's heart. Now we go on this morning to consider that it is also the Christian's war. Let us pray. Father in heaven, open your word to us, we pray, and show us marvelous things from your law, we ask, that we may be in every way what you have called us and what you have made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 7, we begin at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, Sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is a war, Paul says, a war going on inside. And Paul, being a typical Christian, had the typical Christian experiences. Here, as in the rest of his ministry, in which he called upon the people of God to imitate him, he is setting an example for us of what it means to live the Christian life. And that life, according to Paul's example, is anything but comfortable, anything but easy, anything but a small sort of shuffling along the way of life's highway and the path of least resistance. It is war. It is bloody, dirty, violent, all-out war. With whom? With the Muslims? With the Hindus, with politicians in Frankfurt and Indianapolis and Washington who don't see things the way we do, with other churches, other Christians, no, none of those. With whom then? It's an important question to ask and to Answer, after all, in war, it is the nature of the enemy that determines the nature in terms of the combat. We're seeing something of this right now in Iraq, where our soldiers are fighting a war, but not the way our fathers and grandfathers fought in previous wars. In the world wars of the 20th century, for example, the enemy was out there. He was on the other side of the lines, on the other side of the barbed wire. Well, there was plenty of hand-to-hand combat, to be sure, but even then the enemy was much, or at least most, uh, most, or if not much of the time, clearly seen and known by the color of his uniform, or by the language he spoke, or his accent. But the war being fought today against terrorism, and particularly on the Iraqi front, but also in a sense right here in the United States, is an enemy 
not quite as easily distinguishable. He is not over there across a dividing line of clearly defined battlefronts and wearing a uniform. The enemy is within. He is next door. He blends himself into a crowd and freely makes his way through airport security and onto airplanes. He oftentimes is a familiar face, someone with whom we've grown fairly comfortable, even welcomed into our homes. So with this war, in which you and I are Christian or must be engaged, the enemy is within. The enemy lurks about in our own hearts. And there he has gained more than just a foothold. The enemy, as one of my commentaries puts it, roams the place, considering it his own home. Who is this enemy? Jerry Bridges of Navigator's fame in Christian circles calls the war guerrilla warfare. But we still haven't answered the question or defined the enemy. Who is he or what? He is, quite simply, Sin. Sin is your enemy. The sin that still dwells within you, that makes it so, its way so easily to and fro within you and your flesh, still launches its attacks against you so stealthily and so, alas, effectively. I say that this is a war in which you and I as Christians must, must be engaged. And you hear in those very words, I hope, a call to arms. And that's the first point this morning, Christians. You must fight. There is no pacifism allowed whatsoever in this war. You simply must be engaged. And I say this because of the simple and sad fact that to one degree or another, many Christians have given up in this war, have even surrendered to the enemy. They've grown weary of the fight, or they never really took up the war in earnest to begin with. Some Christians want to fight this war only in fits and starts, only half-heartedly, as though the enemy were not really all that terrible a threat. That is not true. He's a terrible threat, a terrible enemy, and he is alive and he is well. He is deeply entrenched and heavily supplied in every one of you. That is why another apostle, Peter, wrote with urgency in his first letter about the war being waged against your souls by the passions of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is not a game into which the Holy Spirit has brought you when he came and indwelt you. This is not a conflict in which to be engaged half-heartedly or part-time as though it were a sideline or a hobby in your life. This is war, and it must be fought right on the battleground on every front of your own hearts and lives, every single Day, all day long. 
As for your enemy, the sin that remains in you, you must show it no mercy, no quarter. I remember the first time I heard that expression, no quarter. It was in connection with the history of that terrible battle at the Alamo that culminated in the deaths of Texans who so bravely defended that mission-turned-fort against Santa Ana and his forces who stood against them and besieged them and far outnumbered them. Santa Ana, you might remember, made his intentions perfectly clear to those who stood against him at that place. From inside the mission, the Texans could hear being played by the Mexican trumpeter, the Deguelo, the cutthroat song. And they could see the red flag wave above the Mexicans' heads, both of which sent clearly one message, no quarter, no mercy. It was to be a fight to the death, and it was. I'm in no way commending Santa Ana and his forces to you, and I say that with their out regard to the parties in that conflict That is the way that you and I must do battle with the sin that remains in us. We must fight against the enemy with might and main to the death, no quarter, no mercy. And it will be a bloody battle. Of that, there is no doubt. It's not perfectly clear what the exact numbers finally were. But in the case of the Alamo, the Mexican forces did not take victory without paying for it with their own blood. At least as many, and according to some reports, many more were injured or lost their lives on the Mexican side than on the Texans. And that's the way the Bible describes this war in which you are a soldier, Christian. It will require of you all of your attention and energy to cut the throat of the sin that remains in you. Think of the exceedingly violent and even gruesome images the scripture uses to describe it. A warfare, a struggle, a beating of one's body, a killing of one's old nature, a cutting off of an arm, a plucking out of an eye, and the taking of God's kingdom by storm. That's the nature of your war that rages within you. Sin can be shown no quarter, no mercy, because it is precisely when you show this enemy one inch that he demands and takes a mile. As Alexander Pope immortalized in his famous lines, vice is a monster of so frightful a mean that his appearance. Vice is a monster of so frightful a mean that to be trusted needs but to be seen. Yet seen too often, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace.
And alas, is that not the case, dear flock, how we hate sin. We hate even the look of it. It is repulsive to us, and yet somehow seen enough. Flirted with a little bit, toyed with, played with. We start enduring it, and then embrace it. Christians today who are having trouble undoing the terrible effects of months or years of returning again and again to pornography, for instance, first knew how ugly, how grotesque were the images they were looking at. But before long, becoming too familiar, they were drawn in and taken captive by it until it became a part of their very flesh, demanding more and more ground. Fight, Christian. Even though, alas, some battles will be lost along the way, and they will, fight on. Do not give up the war. Remember Paul. Remember he, even he. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul here. At the end, or near the end anyway, of a godly life and ministry such as his was. That if even he in this point of maturity in his life and ministry found that the battle raged so and he often found himself face down in the mud of sin, then you will too. But like Paul, you keep up the fight and do not surrender. Give sin no quarter, no mercy, no opportunity. You young people here, listen carefully. Don't go where you know sin is waiting to take you captive. And the couch in the dark room with that girl, with that guy, behind the next click of the computer mouse where sin is waiting to take you captive again. The next click of the television remote And all of you, watch out for that root of bitterness that rises up in your hearts. Don't just trim it off at ground level. Pull it out by the roots. Have done with grudges. Have done with wicked thoughts about others. If you've stolen... Put that pattern to death right now. If it is covetousness, you tell your own soul, and then you tell it again and again and again. Every day you practice that biblical work of soliloquy, of speaking to your own soul, and you tell it to be content with what God has given you. And you remember the great weapons, the means of salvation, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And that with fasting, these are your equipment for the war with sin. You say, I can't do it. I can't fight this war. 
And you are right. In a certain sense, you cannot if you try to fight this war on your own strength. Which brings me to the second point. In this war, you must not only fight, you must also, second, depend. You must depend, that is to say, on your great captain in this fight, your Savior and your Lord, Jesus Christ, and on his Spirit, whom he has sent to you for this war. A simple fact of the matter is that in your battles, Christians, you are sometimes going to be brought to the very edge of despair. If you will fight this war, you will find yourself sometimes in despair. I've seen this in you myself. I've seen some of you reduced to tears over the fact that you return again and again and again to the very sin you most hate. It's a perfect reminder that we cannot fight this war on our own strength. Not for one minute. Oh, we must fight, make no mistake about that, but the strength with which we must fight against the desires of our very own flesh must come from outside of us. It must be God's strength in us. Paul wrote in another one of his letters, this one to the Corinthians, about an affliction that brought him to the very point of despairing of life itself. But he wrote, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, no affliction, no affliction is so terrible for a Christian who has gone up high and down deep in the things of God than his or, or, or her own sin. Nothing cuts them as deeply as the gnawing thought that they continue to do the very things they most hate while the things they want to do seem somehow to elude their grasp. Why should this affliction be any different from any other? Let it turn you to God to throw you into dependence upon him who raises the dead to be your aid, your help, your strong tower in this, your greatest war of this Life, the war against indwelling sin. As we sang just a little while ago, unto the hills do I lift up my eyes. From whence cometh my help? From the Lord God it comes. And then fighting and depending in this war, finally, third Christian, look ahead, anticipate. Remember Remember that the outcome of this war is a foregone conclusion. Even when it seems to be at its lowest ebb, particularly when we are at our lowest, that is when this truth shines the brightest. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here is a saint brought to the end of himself. Paul was not exaggerating. This was not hyperbole for a point. Christians who know their sinfulness say the very same things. They wet their pillows with the tears of this Desperate cry. But don't stop there. 
Because there's an answer. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The outcome of this war, Christians, is certain. To quote from an earlier part of this letter, that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where it is all going for those who are in union with Christ. No matter how bad the fight becomes, no matter how covered with the mud and the blood and the tears and the sweat of this war, you may be, regardless of how close to despair this struggle takes you, you may be sure of this altogether. The victory is yours. And it will be. James Boyce, the late James Boyce, makes the point that when the armies of Oliver Cromwell were winning battle after battle in the English Civil War, it was said of them that they could not lose because they knew even before they started to fight that God was on their side and had given them the victory. Now again, without comment on the issues of that war or the motivations of either side, notice that principle that holds true for us as soldiers of Christ embroiled in the civil war in our own hearts. The outcome has already been decided. Christian, you will triumph. You will win. Christ has won, and in him you too will have victory. What greater impetus do you need to keep fighting than that? You will not, you will not, you will not lose this war if you will but fight. And you do not fight it in your own strength, but with the strength that God himself, your captain and king, gives to you who has gone before you, who has already won. But you must fight. You must be willing to suffer in this battle. I find it instructive that Paul carried to the heights of heaven in verse 24 in contemplation of the victory to come finds himself in verse 25 right back in the same place again. And so must we. With one eye set on heaven, you Continue, Christian, the struggle against sin on earth and do not give up. That has been the practice of a great multitude who are now in the place where there is no more warfare, but who entered there precisely because they did not fail to continue in the conflict here, sometimes winning, yes, sometimes losing but always fighting. 
Remember Amy, Amy Carmichael, that faithful missionary to India who waged war with the sin in her own life. Now she turns to you to ask, as it were, from beyond the grave in one of her most famous poems, this searching question, Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Christian, you make it your business to enter heaven Bearing the scars of battle against your greatest and most fearsome enemy, the sin that lurks in you. Remember your captain's most powerful metaphorical instructions. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Fact is, we will, all of us who have fought this good fight, go limping into heaven. Missing hands, missing feet, missing eyes, having battled with sin, but it will be a march of triumph indeed. And nothing we give up in that battle against sin will fail to be replaced and more by our great rewarder. Listen to Christina Rossetti, the author of that Exquisite hymn in our hymnals, None Other Lamb, on the nature of the reward that awaits every Christian who will persevere in this fight. And then with this I have done. All our lives long we shall be bound to refrain our soul and to keep it low. But what then? For the books we now forbear to read, we shall one day be endued with wisdom and knowledge. For the music we will not listen to, we shall join in the song of the redeemed. For the pictures from which we turn away, we shall gaze unabashed at the beatific vision, at God. For the companionships we shun, we shall be welcomed into angelic society and into the communion of the triumphant saints. For all the amusements we avoid, we shall keep supreme jubilee 
And for all the pleasures we miss, we shall abide and shall forevermore abide in the rapture of heaven. Amen.